0: Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today I'm excited to be kicking off a weekly guest series review of the Alien franchise. Over the next few weeks, I'll be joined by a friend of the show, Birdo, to review one of the most beloved and influential horror sci-fi series of all time. And this week, we begin with the pivotal foundation of the series, Ridley Scott's 1979 film Alien, which is currently streaming on HBO Go and HBO Max. Birdo, welcome to the show.
1: No, Thanks for having me back.
0: No problem, man. I always love having you on and getting to uh,
1: shoot the
0: shit about movies, and I'm- I couldn't think of a better guest to be joining me to do the Alien series because uh, Alien is a film that you and I have loved for many years, but you yeah. haven't seen all of the movies in the series. No. So I was kind of excited to get a chance to revisit them, but also to kind of bring in somebody that is experiencing a couple of the films in the franchise fresh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So Honestly, I saw the original Alien with you the first time it was like a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen Prometheus before. We, I mean, we watch that all the time. Yeah, we, it's, I think it's one of one of my favorite, at least for sure. Prometheus um, is
0: in our uh, our st- our stable of uh, Return yeah, to movies.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, Aliens. I, yeah, I've only seen very minimal the original one, so um, I'm excited. It was it was good. It was good to get back to it. Like I, the like scene where Prometheus kind of got its all of its uh, original story, I guess, in a sense like mm-hmm. where they got the concept and idea. Yeah, it's it's good. It's good to rewatch it and do a review on it.
0: Yeah, so you and I actually got to see Alien uh, in the theater a year, yeah, yeah. a year or two ago for the 40th yeah, yeah. anniversary, which was an amazing yeah. experience. Like it was a movie that I had seen a bunch growing up, just because one of my grandparents loved it so much and showed it to me as a kid, probably a little too early. But uh, <laughs> getting to see it on the big screen, I mean, as an adult, yeah. was fantastic to kind of replicate the experience that people had in the theater originally. Uh, it right. Was just amazing, and it kind of just shows how well that movie stood the test of time.
1: Yeah, I think I think watching in the theater is kind of dope because you really get the whole surround sound experience and the big screen. Uh, it's kind of cool to think about. It's like yeah, people like in the seventies like watched it in the theater. I think it's it's kind of neat. I wish they had done more of these kind of movies where they just reshoot it in the theaters or like mm-hmm. show it again in the theaters. I think it'd be awesome. It'd be a good a good experience. I mean, ones like we're used to watching it at home, where it's like you have a certain quality of sound. But when you're in the theater, it's a completely different experience.
0: Yeah, and I think we're gonna start to see more of that. I would hope. Uh, yeah. Just because, again, getting to see some of our favorite movies on the big screen, it you're right. Like I'm not I personally, I'm not the biggest theater go goer. Yeah. Like I'm not crazy about sitting in a theater surrounded by a bunch of other people. But right. especially when it's one of these kind of like anniversary screenings of older mm-hmm. movies. Those people are going to be fans of that movie. So it's a little different than kind of going to a a general audience kind of viewing of whatever is premiering on a Friday night. Usually yeah. when you're going to see something with like a bunch of fans, they know what to expect if it was like going to see Alien or Terminator or Robocop right. type movies. And it's, it's just a different atmosphere. And it's one that I think is almost more enjoyable just because yeah. like – People know what to expect, but they're there to see that movie. You're not going to get the guy like on his cell phone or the person that's like talking or whatever. It's like they're very much keyed in to being there for like the anniversary or the special screening of a movie that they love. So the whole thing was – that was probably like my favorite theater experience was seeing – Alien, the 40th yeah. anniversary.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's a good experience. Just like even for people that have seen the original ones in the theater, I think it's kind of like a nostalgia kind of thing that just to go back and redo it and relive it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you definitely get that. I feel like once when you're in the theater, you're more focused and you pay attention to things rather than you watch it at home. Sometimes you'll be goofing off on your phone or like on Instagram or something while the movie's playing and you don't pay much attention to it. But yeah, no, it was definitely a great experience.
0: Yeah. But uh, let's jump into it. So for those who somehow at this point still haven't seen the original Alien, uh, it's the story of a crew aboard the commercial space vessel, the Nostromo. uh, And the crew is abruptly woken from cryosleep by the ship's AI to investigate a distress signal. But upon exploring the source of the distress signal, a crew member becomes infected by a parasitic organism that makes its way back onto the Nostromo ship. Uh, So the thing that's always stood out about Alien for me and has withstood the test of time is that it doesn't feel like a traditional sci-fi movie. It very much Mm. feels like a horror-centric depiction of a sci-fi movie. Um, Whereas movies at the time like Star Wars A New Hope was very kind of flashy and Mm -hmm. it was very fantastical. Like it's showing off all of these cool uh, spaceships and all in these brightly colored worlds and everything. And it's very flashy. Whereas Alien is very much the opposite of that. It's kind of this very dark atmosphere both figuratively and literally uh it's Mm -hmm. kind of has this just grungy unpolished unclean to it yeah none of the characters are mesmerized by space travel or spaceships it's kind of like you're just in this world and this is the thing like people have come to accept it to a point where it's like space travel is not extraordinary anymore it's just a way of life
1: yeah and i just love
0: that whole darker atmosphere that kind of ridley scott brought to it
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah, the uh, the I think one of my favorite things is the settings, the way the spaceship is built, because mm-hmm. you really get that feeling of that like, you're in space, you're in a spaceship. Um, also, the even the soundtrack, like in the intro, when it kind of like it, it's kind of showing you how what the spaceship looked like as everything's coming back to life, I guess, because everything has been shut down, they've been asleep for so long. Um, even just like it was like the the soundtrack to it is like very mellow and low, like it's very a quiet place, like space, I guess in In Star Wars, we're used to like hearing sounds and explosions and radio, and like with aliens, like a dark, quiet place where it's like anything you hear any noise, and it's like, what is that? There's gotta be something out there that's scary and it, it you definitely get that feeling even from the intro for me, it was like wow it's it's really well done, really well put together, and yeah, the setting definitely set the tone for the rest of the movie,
0: yeah, so Jerry Goldsmith was the uh the composer for the film, mm. and I think you nailed it in that in the opening kind of credits crawl where the camera is just scanning from left to right and showing basically deep space. And then Mm -hmm. we see sort of the outline of a planet and then we finish on a shot of the exterior of the uh, Nostromo. But just kind of like capturing the vast emptiness and darkness of space versus that soundtrack that is not this massive orchestral score like a Star Wars or something like that or a Star Trek movie. It's very much kind of just capturing the emptiness of space in a way that it's not over the top, it's kind of mellow like you said, but mm-hmm. it just builds this very thick atmosphere that I think right from the jump you, you don't even see anything other than the each of the little uh, parts of the title yeah. fate, uh, coming into screen which I love in that yeah, yeah. it's it doesn't just say like a splash screen like alien, it just mm-hmm. it's individually piecing together each letter in yeah. the word alien very slowly and it kind of just shows we're uncovering all of these different elements in that opening shot, yeah. whether it be just like getting a feeling for the atmosphere or even the title itself, um, is something that, I mean, getting to see that on the big screen when we did and the fourth anniversary yeah, was like amazing. It's a
1: unique experience. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I, I really did. Like, like you said, the title, I think it's kind of cool. They use these like weird, like sticks, almost mm-hmm. like alien, like whatever yeah. we would think it's like an alien, like, um, letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it just definitely, it definitely kind of like emphasizes that they're in space, they're in the middle of nowhere. It's like this different world where they're, humans are not used to being around. Mm-hmm. But I mean, for them, it's like, like you said earlier, it's like, yeah, they're used to being in the ship, but it's like for us, the viewer, it's like a whole different environment yeah. that we're not used to seeing humans. And yeah, it definitely. Yeah, the whole, that whole intro, I think it's probably, it, it's a really good intro to just sh- kind of show you make you aware of where they are and what kind of ship they are. And it's like, I don't know, I just really enjoy that. It really like kind of helps you um, hone in on to like what's like what is to come basically.
0: Yeah. And I mean, without that atmosphere and everything that Ridley Scott kind of uh, put into the film, I mean, on the face of it, it's a very simple movie. The concept is, it, the concept is basically like truckers in space Yeah, and an alien comes back and on board and tries to kill everybody like, It's very simplistic. It's not that out there, Mm -hmm. but it is really that uh, much about like the presentation of everything and the cinematography of the film as well Mm -hmm. in that one of my favorite shots early on, you kind of referenced in that the beginning of the film is about the ship essentially waking up and that everybody else is asleep and we're getting these long tracking shots of the hallways of the Nostromo uh, and just kind of getting to see all these unpolished, but very intricately Mm -hmm. detailed sets yeah, and I don't. I think that's pretty difficult for a director to do. In that, you have the first five minutes of the movie. There's no dialogue. There's no characters. It's just kind of like soaking in this atmosphere. Um, yeah. And one of my favorite shots from that is when we get to the cockpit of the Nostromo, mm-hmm. and the computer turns on. Yeah. But the camera kind of lingers on one of the helmets that's right. in the chair, and you, yeah. the computer turns on. But you see the reflection of the computer screen right. on the the, helmet's on the helmet visor, yeah. visor, basically, and just. Little shots like that really help to establish – it's not only like very creative in a sense of uh, a very normal shot or a creative way to go about a traditional type of shot, Mm
1: -hmm. but again,
0: it kind of just stresses the the idea that his sense of atmosphere and influence is on every single bit of this movie that by all intents and purposes is a pretty standard, straightforward sci-fi movie on paper – but at the same time like those little nuances are what really engross us in that world before we even get our first line of dialogue yeah
1: yeah I feel like that that scene kind of gives it like a creepy look to it like a Mm -hmm. like you're seeing off of the reflection of the helmet and it kind of adds this like fear into like what like like it's a whole different place. And also I like the scene where it's like, you start seeing the lights coming on and they start flickering through the hallway. Mm-hmm. That's such a creepy, like, cause you're, ex- I feel like you're expecting, for me, I was expecting something to be standing there and like it disappeared. But like, just like, as it goes, it scans through the hallways and through the whole environment, you see the lights flickering on. Like it kind of shows you like they've been, they've been asleep for a long time and like even, even the engines have to get going again. And it's like the energy has to start flowing through the ship again as they float through space. Yeah, so
0: they said like a big influence or something that seemed to be an influence on Ridley Scott's film and his just his style in general for building tension was like Alfred Hitchcock movies from like mm. the 40s and 50s where you didn't see a lot of like the killer or the quote unquote monster, which yeah. is very true in Alien. Like we don't see an yeah. alien for very the first minimal, yeah. 45 minutes, 50 minutes of the movie, but mm. it is very much about building up the tension around that. And if you don't yeah. have the kind of build up, then- if, then it becomes more apparent that it's just a guy in a rubber suit. And that's right. something that yeah. like, in the making of Doc that I watched, they kept talking about that, that idea that like, this would be, in their mind, this would be a traditional B-movie when they were mm-hmm. making it. And that was Ridley Scott's greatest fear, was that this movie would just be seen as another alien movie, another monster movie, basically, that has, yeah. a, it's very clear it's a guy in a rubber suit. And if you do freeze frames on the xenomorph, Like, yeah, Yeah. it's very clearly a guy in a rubber suit, but it's more about the way that he kind of shoots the scenes, the way that he lights them, the way that he's very restrained in showing us the xenomorph in a lot of ways. Like, yeah, it's never on screen until the very end of the movie for more than like three or four seconds. Right. Like it jumps out at a character or its head lowers down or Mm -hmm. there's a close up on its mouth. But yeah, it that restraint, I think, is what ultimately makes this movie incredibly scary all the way through, even though you right. don't see the monster for very much of it.
1: Yeah. I think the minimal, um, I guess, film time that the monster gets kind of gives it a more fear look to it. Mm. Uh, more thrill of like what, what kind of monster is it? What kind of alien is it? Um, yeah, they definitely, I think, yeah, he did a, uh, really did a great job at doing that, putting emphasizing on that, uh, like f- the fear of just like not showing you anything, but still, Having you experience this, like there's something dark and wrong about this. It, it definitely, yeah, he definitely executed that really well for me.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, for, I think one of my favorite moments is when we get to the planet itself and mm. they're starting to investigate and they split up and we get to see the alien craft for the first time. Yeah. Uh, and the more supernatural or more apparent the alien, artifacts are or the alien yeah. ship and then obviously what's inside of the ship yeah um it really speaks to just how pivotal hr geiger's artwork was and he was yeah. the swedish artist that was commissioned basically and he was response there were a couple of conceptual artists for the film like mm-hmm. um ridley scott even storyboarded the entire film oh like you. he did it himself he drew out the storyboards yeah. wow. sort of like the action that was going to be happening and the plot pacing and everything and actually this Fox was so impressed with his storyboards that they like doubled the budget for oh, the shit. special effects. So it went from like back in the day, 4 million something dollars to like eight and a half or something like oh, that. Oh, wow. Um, but HR Geiger was imperative in designing not only the ship, but like the space jockey, which is the guy that's in that, um the, the massive alien yeah, that yeah. we see later. Um, yeah. And then like the face hugger and of course like the xenomorph and- While there were other conceptual artists involved in the film, like those four things that I mentioned are the entire identity of Alien, essentially, Mm -hmm. that have gone from 1979 when it was released all the way up to like Alien Covenant, which was two or three years ago. And it just kind of shows how pivotal his touch was in designing this world, as much as Ridley Scott's like style was in crafting the capturing the essence of like different scenes and whatnot. Right. The artwork, I think, or the yeah, it's amazing, creature design man. is amazing.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. I I like the fact that the spaceship is not round like we're used to seeing, like a UFO. It's a round disc shape. Mm-hmm. I think it gives it that uniqueness because I feel like had had the ship been like a round disc like shape, I feel like it would have not have been as scary because mm-hmm. we're. I feel like. As human, I don't know, we have like this image of spaceships as being like UFOs being like a, sh- a round shape. And it's like, all right, it's not as scary looking like we've seen that many a times. It's very the classical. Fact this- yeah, yeah. It's a very classical use of it. Um, but I feel like the fact that it's like a half shape almost and it's like it's like a huge ship but it's like a half shape. It's got, a diff- it's, got its uniqueness to it. Mm. Which I really like. Uh, it kind of definitely showed you it's it's not it's not like any ordinary alien ship, I guess that we're used to.
0: Yeah, I think it really again like it's a very simplistic kind of paint not paint by the numbers, but it's a very simplistic sort of overarching story of, yeah. about them having to investigate. Somebody gets infected and brings back this alien that ends up killing everybody or mm-hmm. trying to kill everybody. Um, and it really is the little creative touches that make the film that unique and unlike anything else and to a certain extent anything any other sci-fi movie that's ever been made in a lot of ways like you said like something from the ship to the face hugger pods like yeah and of course like the special effects team that would bring these things to life and the modeling teams but again it's one of those little touches that when you see it you're just like I've never seen anything like this and for it to hold up so well Mm -hmm. like that the model design and the creature design, I don't think, has aged poorly at all. And no. while, again, like yeah, the Xenomorph is a guy in a rubber suit. Thanks to the way that it's portrayed by Ridley Scott and the way that it, the scene is lit and all of these things, like it still remains just as menacing as it did all those years ago.
1: Right. Yeah, I think the uh, one of the craziest things for me it's when we get when we do get to see where the facehuggers come from. Mm-hmm. Just the way that egg shape, it's like it's something like. Completely out of this world, like I don't know, I would have never thought of the way that that would come out of it's just like it opens up and it like kind of rolls around in the slime mm-hmm. um but I think yeah, they did a, an amazing job at really putting that much detail into the creature that like when you do get to see them, you're just like know like they're disgusting and creepy looking and like literally out of this world like it's just something that um I think it it was it paid off like you know they're they're I'm sure they worked so hard on coming up with these concepts. I'm sure they have many concepts, but the the final pick I think was definitely worth it.
0: Yeah. And I think it really is this idea that like if you're gonna do an alien movie or a movie about aliens, it has to be it cannot be the classical sense of an alien. Right. Like you said, this kind of yeah this idea of the round spaceships and the little green men like Marvin the Martian right. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It really is the design and the uniqueness to those things mm-hmm. that are presented in a way that it's presented as something we've never seen before and we still haven't. I can't think of yeah, anything else yeah. that's like a facehugger in sci-fi movies today. Right. Um, And it really does, I think the idea that like some people might just call this a sci-fi movie, like I mm-hmm. am very specific in referencing this as like a sci-fi horror movie because this right. idea that this organism latches onto your, this spider-like organism yeah. latches onto your face and then shoves a tentacle down your throat to impregnate you That's is just, crazy. it's Disgusting. so terrifying. Yeah. And it's like, the. Yeah. I would not be surprised if the first time people saw that they like had nightmares that night because yeah. it's just like this idea that this thing is going to latch itself onto your face. And then as we see, like it dies and you're like, and you wake up and you're like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Like that was weird. Right. But then really the horror is just beginning. Like that was the first stage and second stage is a hell of a lot worse than the first stage.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, that's probably one of the creepiest thing that that I've seen a movie and like even nowadays, I don't think they have even tried replicating it because it's so out there. I feel like that idea of a face hugger, like that would make sense how, I don't know. Now that you think about it, once you've seen the movie, it's like, that would make sense. That's the way they go about laying the eggs. Mm -hmm. But like, I I can't think of any other idea how a xenomorph would be uh, come about. The fact yeah. that they lay the egg inside you, it it absorbs basically all your DNA's and it becomes this thing. Mm-hmm. It's a it, it literally just tries to replicate your your body or whatever body that it's in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's a, such a crazy idea to even think about.
0: Yeah, I mean it comes back to H.R. Geiger's artwork yeah. and like I don't know how much you know about him, but this the stuff that he designed for the movie is incredibly tame this dude mm. like had super disturbing artwork that was blending his whole style was blending like people with machines and bio organisms and like He's out there weird huh? sex yeah. stuff <laughs> and like everything is very like phallic shaped in base yeah. like the alien head the face hugger obviously like imp- like sticking part of itself down your throat and yeah, all this far out there stuff like uh dan o'brien who's the screen uh, wrote the screenplay for the film had to meet geiger to talk through a lot of these ideas and as soon as he met geiger geiger apparently this is according to uh the beast within the making of documentary i watched uh geiger offered him like opium as soon as he oh, met him jesus and he was like no nah, i'm good like why do you take this stuff and geiger's was basically said like oh it, my dreams scare me too much this type jesus, of stuff like he just had insane. such far out there artwork and <clears throat> yeah At the same time, like that's something that this film needs. And even Ridley Scott said at one point, um, like they tried to shop around a lot of different artists for things, and he Mm -hmm. was like, No, like you need to look at this guy's fucked up artwork. This is what (laughs) we need to make this film unique. And it really has, because this idea of the xenomorph hasn't evolved a whole lot over the series of the films. Like, there's little things that have changed and whatnot, but at the core, like the alien franchise is about facehuggers and it's about xenomorphs and that's right. basically it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was like, even, even in the, in the um, like throughout movies, like we see them in alien vs Perder, the xenomorph has never really changed. It's literally right. been the same concept throughout from the seventies until nowadays that mm. the most recent movies. And I feel like that's so, like I just shows you the, the amount of like talent and the, and the skill of, of the creators, you know, and like developing this concept, which is like, it still holds up till t- now. Like even the face huggers, like that's something that still creeps me out. Even when we watched the uh, alien versus predator, it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it goes, it just, I guess it breaks through the time of aliens, I guess monsters. It kind of holds up so well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, th- that's a weird concept, but I could definitely see that guy taking all these weird, like drugs to like, yeah, kind of help himself sleep at night. Cause like yeah. to come up with an idea like that, you gotta be out there.
0: You kind of have to, Yeah. Uh, but switching gears. So, the xenomorph and all of the creature effects in the models, and especially we didn't actually touch upon like the ship models, yeah, for the nostromo mm-hmm. or even the dropship that they take down to the planet. Like, yeah, some phenomenal modeling work. Yeah, that that's I think is really unlike again, like, not to keep comparing it to Star Wars, but in terms of like Star Wars, again, everything was kind of very cleanly designed and everything was very. Uh, fantastical in its portrayal and yeah. just the kind of like making sure that you could see every nook and cranny of the ships right. yeah. which I mean yeah. if you spend all that time designing something you want people to be able to see it whereas yeah. with Alien all the modeling is very uh, engulfed in shadows in a lot of ways and mm-hmm. it's more about the little things that you can't see that make it yeah. feel so much more imposing like yeah. one of my favorite shots is when the dropship lands on the alien planet and mm-hmm. Dallas asks, uh tells them to turn on the floodlights, basically. Yeah. And it's basically a completely dark scene, but then you get the kind of like undercarriage lights lighting up the scene and showing yeah. little bits of the planet, little bits of the ship, and whatnot. And even though you can't see all of it, still, like, it just seems like such an imposing thing. It doesn't feel like a model at that point.
1: Right. Yeah. No. It, it like I think the pra- even the practical effects on that. It's I think probably 90% of it, even if not 95% of it is all practical, which I think it's awesome. And I really like the fact that the space, the cargo spaceship looks like a cargo spaceship. It's huge. It's like, it carries these like four pillars on the edges. Mm -hmm. I think it's like, and it, it looks like a cargo ship. And then inside of this cargo ship, they have like a little smaller spaceships where they have to travel to to like a planet or something like they did. But yeah, I think the concept of the ship is it's, it's a really well done concept. Um, I do, I do like the, the fact that it has like this dark look to it. And like, even when like later on to the movie, when you get to see they're going through like the, like the engine rooms and stuff like that, you see like there's wet and there's humid, Mm -hmm. there seems like it's, everything's like humid and like sticky and gross. And it's like steam coming out of these pipes and there's water dripping everywhere. I think that those, those details is, I think what really gets me like, like, wow, they did put a lot of hard work into it and it definitely paid off for me.
0: Yeah, it feels very like industrial. And yeah. there's that setting the tone I think also or that sense of a fully formed idea for like this is a commercial ship. These are just these are yeah. truck drivers in space. They're not military, all of these things. Yeah. It really goes to challenging kind of the conventions of a lot of sci-fi movies from that period, which I feel like right. everybody is a marine in space essentially at that point or they're a warrior or something like that. But this is what happens when you put this unimaginable extraterrestrial threat against a bunch of people that just they just spent how many years out in space now they got to wait yeah. 10 months to get home and they just want to check right like, one of the first thing that they argue about when they wake up from cryosleep is like <laughs> what's my bonus the, looking the like? Bonus, like yeah yeah with uh parker, uh, parker and brett yeah. like yeah the first thing they want to do is yeah, let's talk about the bonus situation like, right which i love yeah. because it is very much reinforces this idea like all of this technology to us is like light years ahead of where we're at. Yeah. But these are just like blue-collar guys in space. Like at the end right. of the day, all of this is about the check. I don't give a fuck I'm in space. Like yeah, I still yeah. need to get paid.
1: Yeah, I like I like the fact that they threw that in there. It's like we're so used to seeing war, like I guess, warriors and like marine and army people in the space. And it's like now we get to see these just workers, just regular people like in space all they they're doing their job that's all they're doing they're not doing anything crazy they're not like looking they're not going to space to like look for things they're just basically taking a cargo ship to back to earth and that's it and i I think it's it's so unique even to nowadays because i feel like all the space movies there's, there's always something something has to do with like we're searching for a new planet or like we're like there weren't like in aliens, they weren't searching for planet. They just wanted to get home. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that they get, like, like you said, like when they wake up, they're like, first thing they do is like, all right, am I going to get paid for this? How am I going to get paid? Yeah. Like what, like we need to work, work this out, you know? Like, cause that's the first thing they were thinking about, you know? Well, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, it, it's, it's unique in its own way for sure. I think as a space movie overall.
0: Yeah. Something that, I mean, we'll get to obviously Ripley, uh, played by Sigourney Weaver in in a minute, but I think the thing that I have come to appreciate more and more about this movie, the more that I've watched it, which is, I, I mean, I've seen this movie way too many times. Yeah. But uh, the idea that for a, major- for a majority of the cast, it's relatively unknown people.
1: Mm-hmm. Like yeah. there's
0: no massive star. Like even Sigourney Weaver, who obviously would gr- go on to become one of the most famous, well known actresses of all time, like right. this was her second movie. Yeah. And the idea that the core cast of people, some of them might be more well known than others. Mm -hmm. These are not like a list people that are out there, and something and a comparison that I want to make is that did you see that movie Life that came out a couple years ago?
1: No, I I don't know. So it had like
0: it was this kind of a standard space, Ryan Reynolds, yes, exactly. Oh, yeah, I
1: think I have seen it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So
0: there's an organism that escapes in space into the ship basically and starts to kill people, but. That's an example of a movie where, when you put these massive Hollywood stars in the in every single role, seemingly, yeah. Like I know it was Ryan Reynolds, Jake, uh, Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, and there's one or two other fairly big name people that um, I think Jessica Biel, maybe. No, anyways, that's an example of a movie that I was taken out of the experience because every single role feels like a big name person, right? Whereas with something like Alien, I'm very much in. I'm involved in it more because it's very believable the way that's presented. Even looking back, I know who all of these actors are now and I can associate them with certain movies. The movie doesn't present itself like it's a Hollywoodized version of a space tale kind of thing. So the idea when I initially saw it being like, I don't know who's safe among this cast.
1: Right. You know what I mean? And,
0: And it carries itself that way throughout. Like there's no real... Ripley early on is like oh she almost gets killed here almost gets killed there almost like she yeah. faces the alien basically at the very end of the movie so mm-hmm. the way that the movie carries itself it carries itself as if none of these people are safe and right there's no kind of like career looming over the, the movie for any particular right. actor like I'm not yeah. distracted by the fact that oh that's Harry Dean Stanton that's John Hurt that's Ian Holm it's kind of like yeah. these are just they're very much embodying the role of that they're in.
1: Yeah, I think I think it kind of the fact that they're not A-list actors helps them to I feel like distribute more of the role. Like they're not fighting for film time, mm-hmm. like screen time. Yeah. I feel like it kinda helps to melt. like it really helps to mellow out and pace the movie more. Because I feel like when you put like an A-lister with like some random actors or whatever, known name actors, it's like it's like now they need to be in frame most of the movie because that's because everybody knows them. But the fact that these I guess I feel like these actors, they caught them earlier in their career. So they're not, they're not like, they're not really fighting for any screen time. I mean, they are technically, but like they just, they're okay with sharing their screen time with other. And I think that that's, I feel like kind of helps the movie out a lot mm-hmm. because we don't see a lot of Parker or we don't see a lot of Ridley in it, until the end, obviously. But like, yeah, there's a lot of the like, cast. Everything's well stretched. I think for the movie,
0: everybody's really together for a lot of yeah, the scenes yeah. and, I think that kind of sells that sense of camaraderie between them Mm and also a lot of ways where it's like, it's like you said, they're not fighting for screen time a majority of time. We're not spending 20 minutes with Ripley, but then we haven't seen Parker for 15 minutes. We have, we're not with Brett right now. We haven't seen Kane for 25 minutes, that kind of thing. And so I think there's more of a tendency to do that if there's big name characters where like, like I said, even though life had a small cast compared to this, it still at times could feel like, oh, we're just giving this big name more screen time because they're a big name and then this person. And yeah there's just always, Alien has always had a very clear sense of like, this is a group film. This mm-hmm. is a group effort. And obviously when they go to hunt the xenomorph later in the film, they split up. But that's really yeah. the first time other than when they go down right. to the planet. And even yeah. when they go down to the planet to investigate, like it's jumping between the mm-hmm. search party and the people back on the Nostromo. Like yeah. Especially there's um, Ash. Uh, Ash yeah. is like talking to them in constant communication. He's talking with Ripley and all these different things, and it mm-hmm. just it very it very much feels like an organized story that is letting all of its actors shine rather right. than kind of uh, shunning certain characters.
1: Right. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't give any light to um, any specific actor, but no. Yeah. I think um, for me just to kind of go into the characters part. It's like, for me, one of my favorite characters, I think Ash, uh, Ian Holmes, I think did probably the best job at selling to me what he is not, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's like we all throughout the whole movie, uh, spoiler alert, throughout the whole movie, (laughs) we think he's a human. Yeah. But at the end, like at the end, you realize that he's a robot. And I think uh, Ian Holmes did a great job at selling that. Like, you don't really get a sense of this like robotic movement. Like, he seems very like human-like, mm-hmm. and I, first first time I think I've ever watched it. I think I remember it's like even even when I rewatch it, I think of it. He's like, yeah, he's a human, but then you realize later on in the movie that he becomes he was a robot this whole time. And I think him as an actor, that was probably one of the coolest thing to see, like how well he portrayed the fact that he was a robot but more human, mm-hmm. and he tried to fit along. Like even even none of the actors knew this, like or like the characters didn't know this. And I think that was such a great job by him to to set up that, that whole, like really sell you on, he's a human, but at the end of the day, he's a robot.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the entire cast is super strong in this and they all kind of have their own uh, purposes that they serve. And like you said, Mm -hmm. Ian Holm is fantastic, especially just the little nuances that he puts in there that you can kind of start Mm -hmm. to pick up on a little bit on rewatches. But at the same time, it's not overbearing. Like, his character is very mysterious for a lot of the movie mm-hmm. or he does these things and you don't understand the reasons why he's doing them. Right. But at the same time, it's not super overt that he is obviously A, an android, but B, right. that he's an anta- that he's a secret antagonist, basically. Right. And had that been more overbearing, I don't think it would have worked nearly as well because that is a, yeah. a big shock at the end of the movie right. and that's what makes that fight scene between him and Ripley that much more disturbing. Like right. this person that... She wasn't crazy about the whole movie, but she still considered him like safe, right? Like he he was an ally, basically, even right. if she didn't like him. But to find out that he's like and he's the wolf among the sheep's as it were, yeah. Like it's pretty it's pretty disturbing, and it adds another layer to that fight scene that is just super disturbing to me, and has remained probably one of the most disturbing <laughs> yeah, scenes I, of the movie. Like when I was a, a kid, that scene. That. scene scared me so much because Mm -hmm. before you realize he's an android and he gets hit with uh the fire extinguisher because Parker hits him the first time he starts like writhing around the walls and he's like screeching and making this like very strange noise and you don't realize why he's doing that initially so you're like what is the fuck is this all like that scene i just remember scaring me so badly and then you realize obviously oh he's an android but the way that he sells that is just so unique and so inhuman at that moment yeah which to see somebody that you think is human do something that's inhuman is always super terrifying Mm -hmm. to
1: me yeah i yeah that was definitely one of those crazy scenes where it's like what the hell why is he doing that? and then like when he gets hit in the head and he's like bleeding this milk thing like milk is coming it looks like milk coming out of his head Mm -hmm. i was like what the hell and then yeah like you find out that he is an android but i want to go back to so it's like I really like the, the relationship between uh, Ripley and, and um, Ash. Mm-hmm. I, you can start seeing the tension because I feel like once they, the three members go out to explore the planet, I think they're both of them are stuck in the ship and you kind of start to see the, like, there's a lot of difference between them. There's a lot of like Ripley's very suspicious about him it's, yeah. as to like why he's doing certain things. And I think that like you can really see that scene when they're in the lab once they bring Kane back into the ship Mm -hmm. and she starts questioning him he's kind of like giving these like kind of like answers like a quick answer basically not really like a specific answer Mm -hmm. and you can kind of start seeing that Ripley's kind of like questioning like okay why is he doing this why did he open the door when I told it because she's Ripley's in command of the ship once the captain leaves. and. He's like, why did she, why did Ash break the rules of I'm supposed to be the leader here? Why did he do this? And it's like, you start seeing that there's like, there's like a distance growing between them Mm -hmm. or she's very questioning, like every decision that he makes. And I think that's definitely adds more to the movie. I think that there's now there's kind of like, there's supposed to be this group and now there's kind of like an internal, like distancing happening and internal like breakage going on with within them mm-hmm. and uh yeah i think that definitely adds more to the movie which i think it's something i realized like actually i watched the movie yesterday i re it um and it's something that i haven't realized before that i did realize this time watching it again there's yeah. like a distance growth in
0: it yeah th- that it's funny you mentioned that scene where he opens up the door before Mm -hmm. and after Ripley says like well that's not the quarantine protocol we're not letting uh, Kane back onto the ship until we know what's wrong with him because if you break quarantine you risk getting everybody else sick right and that scene like the current COVID epidemic we're living in right now like that scene became so much more sinister this idea that like if you bring that guy onto the ship whatever he has can spread to everybody else and that sort of lack of regard by Mm -hmm. the person that's supposed to be like the science officer Yeah, is just like so alarming now like it was always back then it was kind of strange you were just Mm -hmm. like why would he do that why would he risk that it's probably not a big deal but now knowing just like how quickly something can spread to a group of people like that becomes so. it's such a red flag now and it's not something that you can easily overlook at all Mm -hmm. Um, yeah
1: no that's definitely one of those things I was thinking about it when they were talking about like quarantine it's like wow it's so relatable to nowadays like where it's like don't let them inside your house, you can get sick. And it's like, nowadays, like social distancing and all this is like, it's crazy out. Even like, again, it holds up to this, like, we were never expected to be in such a epidemic going on mm-hmm. um, right now. But like, I think it, it kind of even relates to nowadays, like it, it just shows that the movie kind of like, has this test of time, like it still holds up to nowadays.
0: Yeah. So something that I learned in the documentary that I watched that I was, is like mind blowing to me because I would never think that it would have been written any other way. But apparently, Ripley, who, like I said, is played by Sigourney Weaver, was not written originally as a woman. Oh, really? Which, I mean, just blows my mind considering that she is the one recurring character in the Alien movies. And she's just such a strong character that had not, and her her being female is such an ingrained part of her character's identity mm-hmm. and what it became. Yeah. So the idea that she was ever just um, anything other than female is just like yeah. blew my mind. I don't know. Yeah,
1: I think that, I mean, I, I think as an actress, uh, I think she did a great job. I think that that comes down to the actress, I feel like, the way she portrayed the role. Yeah. Um, I think she kind of like solidified that role as a, a female, not a male. Like, I mean, I would have never thought of that, actually, being a male.
0: Yeah, and I think that is, again, this film plays against the conventions of traditional sci-fi so strongly that to have the essentially the protagonist of the film be a female and be the the lone survivor out of a majority cast of males was not only very different, but at the same time, um, her character not being kind of like eye candy – Essentially, you know what I mean? Like this is something that I think horror doesn't get enough credit for and how progressive horror can be and giving females, female actor, female actresses, giving actresses (laughs) roles that are very empowering and they're not the very kind of like traditional roles where it's like uh, she's not just there to be eye candy. She's not there as a love interest. She's not kind of just there to be fawned over by men. It's like she very much is this independent, strong-willed woman that Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people. I don't know. This might just be me projecting, but I always assumed going in originally that there was supposed to be a uh, romance between her and Dallas, like the captain. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I always kind of assumed when I originally saw this that like that's mm. the direction they're leading in, kind of because yeah. like he's in charge, she's yeah. kind of like the woman that's always talking with him separately yeah, from yeah. everybody else. Yeah. But it never becomes that. It never kind of right. like goes the obvious route. And to avoid yeah. that altogether and to never have like she's flirty at a couple of points in the film mm-hmm. with people. But yeah, yeah, at the same time, it's never like her character is never defined by like she's there to have relationships with somebody. Yeah. Or yeah. Have a relationship with one particular character. Like, right. It is very just mu- it is her character is all about her strong will and the fact that she's able to step up in a leadership role at a time when nobody knows how the hell to handle a situation where they're being hunted by an alien
1: right yeah i i like the fact that there is no in the movie there is no such thing as like romance mm-hmm. it's literally just like a sci-fi horror and it's like you're being chased by there's i feel like there's no not enough time to build any that kind of relationship it also goes to show like they're like this bond that they had in the group within like they've worked together so they know each other there's nothing like they have like i feel like to me it seemed like they had like their own life outside of the spaceship traveling yeah. cargo thing. And it's like, there's no real like time to have like a relationship because you guys are like literally sleeping for most of the trip. Yeah. So I feel like there's no like build up relationship or like any like, kind of like tension between characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, I mean, I enjoy the, the, the fewer relationships there were like Parker and uh, Brat. I think yeah. those—that's probably one. Those are the best duel of that movie, and I think it's probably the most funnier. And I honestly, I think Parker is probably my favorite um, character out of oh, the whole movie, for sure. just because he has his sense of humor. Yeah, it's like it's like when they wake up and and I think um, Dallas tells Parker to go down to the engine room. He's like, "Can I just finish my my cup of coffee?" He's like, "It's yeah. the only good thing in the ship." Yeah. I was like, "That's hilarious!" Like that, I think that's so funny because <laughs> like they literally just woke up. And it's like, go do this now. And it's like, well, we just woke up. We're eating breakfast. Like We're eating our first meal in God knows how many days. Right. And it's like, can I just enjoy the good thing in this ship mm-hmm. <laughs> other than work? You know, like, I think that's a such a, like, yeah. Like, again, the relationship between them, it, it's so great. And I'm glad they didn't introduce any kind of romance to it. Because I feel like it would have lost that sense of fear and scaredness to the movie.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, definitely. I think uh, <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned Yaff- uh So the actor that plays Parker's name is Yafet Koto, And uh, mm-hmm. he's definitely one of my favorite, if not my favorite character, just because yeah. he is very much that guy that everybody's worked with, that it's like, he's going to do the job when he needs to, but at the same yeah. time, like he has this sense of humor that he never yeah. takes anything too seriously. Right. Yeah. Like it goes from him trying to negotiate for bonuses to when they wake up. And I think it's Kane. Kane is like, I feel dead, and and Parker's like, anyone ever tell you you look dead? Like he just has these like little clips for every single moment, Um, and even like little things when he asks um, Ash to get out of his seat when Ash is sitting in his chair, and he's like, thanks. And then when Ash moves, he like brushes off the seat before he sits in it, just like (laughs) these little like moments that are so funny, and they add levity to certain scenes, which I think helps make all the characters to a certain extent relatable. Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's never overpowering like you said like i feel for we said this earlier for a film that's like an hour and 50 minutes long just under Mm -hmm. two hours like it doesn't feel that long and i think it's because the movie's always moving forwards it's always moving towards the investigation of the uh, distress signal to being back on the ship to the to the xenomorph hatches and is free um and like you said there's never any kind of slowdown with like trying to build a relationship, which would maybe end up feeling forced or things like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, But we should jump into like the chestburster scene because that's one of those scenes that is iconic for for as long as as film is a thing. Like that Mm -hmm. scene will be referenced and serve as an influence for horror, sci-fi or sci-fi movies in general.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I really like the lead up to that because I feel like, Mm -hmm. so King gets brought back into the ship and he's basically in a coma and then he wakes up and it's like you see all these like oh like you're you're awake and he's like oh I'm hungry I want to go eat and like they're having this great family moment time almost like they're like eating and everybody's having a great time and then all of a sudden the Kane just kind of like freezes it's like it's like a pain coming out of his chest and then it just jumps right into it and it's like I love how how quickly the mood changed on that in that whole like stretch of scenes cuz it's like Oh, wow, you're alive. Great. Like, let's go enjoy some good time, like eat food and have a bonding moment. And then all of a sudden he's like, he's dead within like, I would say a 20 minute span of him being alive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely, it's definitely one of those scenes that really stands out for me. Um, and and like you said, it's an, it, it's an iconic Scene because that's like the first time we get to see a xenomorph as like a baby. It's a like catching, yeah, which is which is crazy to see a little creepy looking thing.
0: Something that I picked up on this watch that I never did before that kind of makes the scene a little more heartbreaking is that I think it's Parker that suggests that they just freeze him. Like, why yeah. are we gonna fuck around with cutting this thing off his face and potentially burning a hole in the ship because yeah. of, that bleeds uh, acid for blood? Let's mm-hmm. just freeze him, and then he wakes up. And the first thing he says is like, "Hey, let's I'd like to eat one meal before we go to sleep." And Dallas yeah. okays that. And basically, if he hadn't requested to eat and Dallas approved it, they might have yeah. just got, gotten back into hypersleep or right. cryosleep. Like, yeah, and yeah. then maybe it would have explo- maybe it would have exploded out of him earlier or maybe if he's frozen, they would have done right. scans on him before waking him up and seeing like, "Oh shit, he's got this thing lodged right. in his chest." Yeah. Um, and so just this idea that it's his decision almost to ensure his death by like prolonging the cryo freeze stasis right, so that yeah. way when we get to the point that they're enjoying a meal and they assume he's choking mm-hmm. really it's that thing has woken up and it's ready to come out and when a xenomorph baby is ready to come out it comes out
1: yeah it's 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 an intense scene because like you can see it even in lambert's when the xenomorph comes out it like literally f- blood just splattered all over her and i yeah. was like jesus she did a great job at selling that role. Like she was frightened. She looked and, scared. And do
0: you know the story behind that scene?
1: Uh no, I don't think so. No.
0: So the the cast knew basically what the scene was gonna be. They knew that there was gonna be an alien that was gonna look like it was coming out of his chest. And like yeah. they saw that everybody else on set, the cast or the crew, were wearing like raincoats and they had stuff on the cameras,
1: oh, but shit. they didn't know
0: why. Yeah. And so Ridley Scott didn't tell them that he was gonna spray blood all over them. Oh shit. And so the reaction to like getting yeah. sprayed with blood is like a legitimate reaction because they didn't know. To the point That's- that um that uh Yafet Kodo was like pretty shook or pissed to the point yeah. that after they filmed that scene, he like locked himself in his trailer and wouldn't talk to people. Oh Jesus. Because he was just like so pissed, I guess, that they wow. didn't bother telling him. And like you said, Lambert, uh Veronica Cartwright's has that iconic, like, look of shock and yeah. that gasp. And it's like, that's legitimate fear. Um, and I that's think that's crazy. that's definitely a uh, an example of, like, filmmaking techniques that you probably couldn't get away with now. Like Right, yeah. You, back in the day, definitely in, like, the 70s and yeah. 80s, I feel like directors could do certain things to uh, yeah. get into elicit a more authentic, fearful reaction yeah. from people, from
1: actors, but... That's a lawsuit nowadays. Yeah, exactly, dude. Nowadays, <laughs> yeah.
0: like going back and starting to watch like making of documentaries for certain movies and mm-hmm. like preparation for uh, episodes and reviews for the podcast, like just learning about all of the messed up things that some directors did to like get that scare or get that moment yeah. as authentic as possible is like pretty crazy and wild.
1: I think, yeah. I mean, I definitely, they nailed it with this one because I was like, you can see her face. She was in shock and like, the way, like, she had her mouth open. There's literally blood all over her face. Like, that was a perfect scene. Like, they sold that. I don't know if they were, like, just the way the camera was shot. Like, the perfect angle on her as she's, like, screaming. And then you see uh, Ripley in the background, like, shocked. Like, she jumps back. And it's, like, that was one of those scenes. It's, like, like you said, it's an, icon- it's an iconic scene. Like, I feel like if you're a movie fanatic and you like sci-fi kind of movie, I think it's definitely one of those movies you have to watch. Because it's, like, it's got this, like, iconic scene and and just in general, the movie's great.
0: Yeah. So that's also one of two fake outs in the movie that the kind of idea that like everything is fine. Like you said, like they're having this last meal and once they eat this meal, it's time to jump back in the pod and we'll be Mm -hmm. back home when we wake up. Yeah. But then we see obviously what happens and that's kind of like, oh no, the movie is not close to being over because then the xenomorph grows into the full grown xenomorph and then starts hunting down people one by one. Yeah, But then we also have that fake out at the end where after Ripley is self-destructed the ship and she gets yeah. Jinx uh, the cat onto, or no, Jonesy, excuse me, Jonesy Jones, Jones, yeah. the cat uh, yeah. onto the escape pod and they get away mm-hmm. and she's about to get into the cryopod herself. She's like, all right, I'm good to go. Like this thing yeah. is dead. And then we get that at uh, the next 10, 15 minutes of her trying to kill the xenomorph that snuck onto the ship. Yeah. Um, and that was,
1: that was really great how they did that. Yeah. We kind of camouflage it, camouflages in between all these like industrial looking like pipes and all mm-hmm. this. It's like it was perfectly done, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I just love that it doesn't feel rushed. None mm. like every single scene that has the xenomorph show up, even if it's only for a couple of seconds, yeah. is so well done. Like, yeah, the scene where uh, where Parker oh no, sorry, where uh, Brett gets killed and he's yeah. looking for the cat that yeah. th- that scene follows him for like probably a good five minutes of him just walking around and kind of like looking around and like he looks up at this kind of like industrial machinery and like the condensation and the humidity is dropping on his face. Yeah. And then he finds the cat and then we see the xenomorph kind of lower itself from the rafters and and, uh, shoot him in the head with its mini mouth. Yeah. Um, Or we see when uh, Dallas is in the tunnels in the air shafts and it's this very like tight, dark, claustrophobic sequence of him kind of just like scurrying around the trying to find it with the uh motion tracker and then at the last second like it pops out but you only see it for a second yeah and even the final see the final sequence where it gets onto the escape pod like that's the first time that we see the most of the xenomorph on screen where it doesn't cut away really
1: yeah but that's true
0: it's still scary because that's the one point in the film where we see the xenomorph for the most so it feels fresh it doesn't feel like it's a guy in a rubber suit because we've only seen glimpses of him throughout the entire film.
1: Yeah. We only see like the face or the head and like, yeah, no, that's definitely, I want to back to the brat part uh, where he's like looking through Joe, looking uh, for Jones. I really, really like the way that the setting is in that like Mm -hmm. very industrial, like engineer, like you see the water. I feel like they really sell that scene. And then when you see the alien drop behind him and then they show his face and he's like, Drooling this liquid goo and like he just looks very wet and moist. I was like, oh, it's just very, it's very intense scene. That was definitely one of my favorite scenes too. Like I, I feel like that the setting and the way they they set up everything, you get you get a real feel like you're in an industrial ship. It's not just any Star Wars like ship or Star Trek kind of thing. It's like an industrial ship where you see the engine and the cat's like hiding between these like engines and he's like, and you also get to see how the um the xenomorph kind of sheds. He, he finds like like the dead skin. It's like how it's like slowly evolving and like growing. Mm-hmm. I, I think that was kind of a, a cool scene to see that. I'm glad they show that because it's like it kind of it kind of shows you how it evolves instead of like just going from a little baby thing where it goes missing and then just shows up as a giant monster. You kind of right. see how it, it it grows throughout this this period of time that it, it kind of sheds its own skin and it gets a bigger version of itself. I guess.
0: Yeah. That um the the up that they do of the Xenomorph's mouth when it kind of opens yeah. and it curls back those gums to reveal the yeah. second set of uh, teeth. Yeah. Like that is a shot that I'm pretty sure that they've replicated in almost every single one of the alien movies. And yeah. again, it's just a small moment that became so iconic mm-hmm. and so ingrained in the identity of the film series that yeah. it is really one of those things where it's like, I'm sure that's been replicated in tens, yeah. if not hundreds of other sci-fi movies over the years. And, it's just that little attention to detail that is not only great for the atmosphere and the really diving into the horror elements of it, mm-hmm. but it's showing us a restricted vision or viewing of the xenomorph itself. Again, like yeah. we see it drop down, but it's it's almost like you're seeing the shadow of it dropping down because it's out of Brett. focus. It's just for a moment. And then it yeah. keeps cutting between Brett and then his perception of the cat yeah. and then behind him. And so through cutting through that, like you don't see a lot of the xenomorph. So that way in the end sequence, when Ripley's trying to escape with the escape pod, like and you see all of it, it still feels Mm -hmm. new. It doesn't feel worn out. It's not as if we saw the xenomorph in the first 20 minutes in its entirety. And now we're kind of like, yeah, I got it. Like it's a guy in a rubber suit. It's more kind of just the pacing of the scares is so well done that it really does retain that terror in a way that I don't think a lot of monster movies can
1: right yeah I think they do they do a great job at just showing you a glimpse of him and not the full thing at once until the ending obviously but mm-hmm. I think that's what really help you set the pace of like trying to figure out what it really is just the fact that they show you a glimpse of the tail dropping down or the face shot and it's like well you kind of start you're slowly kind of building up the idea of what it looks like until you actually see that it's like this giant skinny tall like alien thing yeah. it's like It's gruesome with this oval-shaped head, Mm -hmm. which is insane. Um, Yeah, I, I really, really like that. That again, like I said, there's like the slow, like throughout the whole movie, you're slowly building up to the ending where you get to see the full thing, and it kind of, I feel like it holds you at the edge of your seat just throughout the whole movie, trying to figure out what the hell is it, how they're gonna kill it, and what's gonna go down, like what what's gonna happen next.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also a fact that I just learned, uh, to this morning, actually before recording was that the guy that they got to play the, in the alien, um, hmm. was six ten, And they, o- the only reason that he was discovered was, is that he was in a pub and somebody oh. involved in the movie came across him in the pub and was just like, that's the guy.
1: <laughs> Holy shit. He was like a 6'10"? graphic. Jeez. Yeah. He was
0: like a graphic design student at university or something in, uh, London. Oh, wow. And he was just happened to be in the right pub at the right time. But, uh. It was definitely one of those things that I think it's one of those things you don't think about until Mm. you realize how uh, imposing the alien itself is and how it basically becomes like a serial killer in space. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. yeah. You would never call this movie a slasher, but Ridley Scott said one of his biggest influences on the horror aspect and his desire with the project alien was to make basically, he said the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in space. Like, yeah, That was the way that he described the type of movie he wanted to make. And mm-hmm. this idea that you're going to take this imposing figure and make it scary throughout the entire movie and have it start to pick off crew members one
1: by one. Like, yeah.
0: I think he definitely nailed that.
1: No, yeah, definitely. Cause yeah, that's definitely one of those. It You don't really think about it now that you bring it up. It's like, it is kind of a slasher because he is, like you said, picking them off one by one. And it's like, Throughout the whole movie, you wouldn't really think of it for me. I personally never thought about it, it being some kind of a sci fi space slasher, but it makes sense.
0: I mean, he, it, it's, I would never describe it as a slasher just because it's so nuanced and it's so yeah, phenomenally yeah. Uh, thought out and yeah. executed on. But at the same time, like it retains that core concept that Ridley Scott wanted of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and mm-hmm. that there's this one figure that's kind of like hunting down people and yeah. it's preying on people that are very much out of their element. Like we, like you and I have been saying in the fact that they're like blue collar truckers who just want to get a paycheck and they're not signing up to like fight monsters or explore the universe. They're like, let's do this job, get home and get paid basically.
1: Yeah. Even, even their weapons seem very, uh, not in like they just seem kind of like made at home kind of weapons like yeah. they don't really seem like a weapon that you would carry in space
0: yeah exactly. they just kind
1: of put like the i feel like the engineers just put it together real quick mm-hmm. and like and that was like yeah this is our defending to defending tool like one of them is a flamethrower yeah that's probably the most hard i like, guess yeah, i feel like that's the hardest one to put together but then the other one's like a stick with like a taser in the in it's the a tip rod yeah 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 so it's like they don't really have anything to like defend themselves because they weren't expecting to run into anything else but at the same time it's like they somehow managed to figure out how to survive like their survival they figure out like we have to make weapons to defend ourselves like that's Mm -hmm. just their instinct and i feel like ash as a character kind of like obviously he was aware of the whole the mission the whole time it wasn't just a cargo trip like they were gonna go figure out like Mm -hmm. i feel like had he like had he like had he had a, like a certain kind of weapon that he could defend himself from um i feel like it would have kind of been like wow he really set like i feel like you would have gotten a feeling of he set them up mm-hmm. but the fact that he he was an android and he got sent with them like i feel like the 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 company i guess like the was wailing you like they weren't expecting anybody to come back right cuz there was no like there's no um, there's no kind of weapon to be like, all right, defend yourself in case something goes wrong. It's just kind yeah. of like, go see, pick up this data. If there's something out there, find it and try to bring it back.
0: If anything, they wouldn't want to send them with weapons,
1: right? Right. Yeah, because they want the whole thing intact. So, yeah. but yeah, it definitely um, I yeah, it, it definitely gets like that that vibe of like, you, again, like you said, like they're like space truckers. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're not really there to fight anything, right? Yeah. yeah
0: and I think in uh, in bringing up Ash and and Yutani what something else interesting that I learned was that Dan O'Brien didn't write the character of Ash. That was something that the producers decided to put into the movie. Oh. Wow. Uh, and Dan O'Brien was very much against that for he he very much struck me like the type of writer that doesn't like anybody else having any input on anything he does. Kind of thing which Yeah, it sounds like that. Is yeah. not great for like creative con- collaborations, but right. uh I think Ash is so imperative to mm-hmm. being able to make the movie into a series. Like, right. And we'll definitely get into this in when we talk about uh, Aliens next week because it's mm-hmm. a much bigger part of Aliens is that yeah. Weyland-Yutani, the company that's behind everything and the people that actually want to get the xenomorphs and like mm-hmm. try to use them and turn them into weapons, which they Ripley hints at. She's like, I assume their bioweapons bio division wants the aliens for weapons in some way. Right. Um, Waylon Yutani is really the bad guy in the series. It's not really the xenomorphs because they're just a creature that exists in this world, in this universe. Right. They're kind of indifferent. They want it, the they're animals. They want to kill everything, basically. Right. But the be- real bad guy happens to be the company that is like sacrificing its own people for its own self interest. For the games, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is what really gives the later films the underlying kind of narrative arcs and whatnot that allow the f- films to continue without feeling like kind of returning back to the well. I mean, it yeah. it's very helpful that each of the following films has a different director uh, until we get to like Prometheus and alien covenant. But yeah. uh, in doing that, none of the films feel as you'll see, feel like the one that preceded it. Hmm. Uh, and I'm really excited to talk about aliens next week because aliens, I it's, a conversation that a lot of people that like Alien get into, where it's like, which one's better? Right. But it's like they could not be more different while still feeling like an Alien movie. Hmm. Like one of the yeah. like, I always describe the first one as sci-fi horror, whereas Aliens is very much more of a action, like a sci-fi war movie. Yeah, in a lot of ways, but it still has obviously the xenomorphs and everything, but tonally it's different while still feeling like it exists within the, uh, the same cinematic universe.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to get back to it. Cause I want to see like the, the difference, like you were talking about, like what are the difference now that I, I've re I've, I've finally seen aliens and I'm, I'm, I think we watched alien too, but I don't remember much of it. So I'm, I'm excited to get back to it and see what, what are the difference? Why whether it's, you know, it, whether it's the story or like what, what the reasoning for going to space is or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm excited to see how that compares Yeah, well, and if it sure. still holds up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation too. But uh, thanks for coming on to jumpstart this uh, guest series review of Alien with me.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Man.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.